This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, Team Cardi Nerds. Dan Aminder here, and we are very excited to share this next Cardi Nerds Rounds recording. Cardi Nerds Rounds are virtual rounds with world experts where we learn the latest evidence through challenging cases. This incredible series is co-chaired by master educators Dr. Karin Desai from Johns Hopkins and Dr. Natalie Stokes from UPMC. Cardi Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This episode is supported with unrestricted funding from Zoll LifeFest. A huge thank you to Mitzi Applegate and Yvonne Chivere for their top-notch production skills that make Cardinerance Rounds such an amazing success. Of course, the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardinerance without external bias. Case details are altered to protect patient health information. And with that, let's round. Karn, take it away. Thank you all of you for joining today. Welcome back to Cardio Nerds Rounds. This is our sixth installment of this series. And for all of you that have joined in the past and for our newcomers here, just a brief introduction. The point of the series is to hear real life cases from people across the country, presenting them to a world expert. And today we truly have a world expert, if not the world expert in the area of antithrombotic management. To get us started, I am going to introduce my co-chair, Dr. Natalie Stokes of this Cardio Nerds Round series. Again, my name is Karn. I'm a third-year fellow from the University of Maryland. And I'm going to turn it away to Dr. Stokes to introduce Dr. Priya Kotapalli. Thank you so much, Karn. I am so excited to be here. This is going to be a great, great episode. Let me introduce Dr. Priya Kotapalli, who is our guest fellow for today. She is the Chief Cardiovascular Fellow at UT Austin, and she will be the inaugural Interventional Fellow there. Priya, take it away. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me today. I love collaborating with the cardio nerds, and I'm really excited to dive into the discussion today. Our guest really needs no introduction. We all know him. We've all followed his illustrious career, and we've had the benefit of learning from him. And today we have him live. We could really take the whole hour to introduce Dr. Deepak Bhatt, but to keep it short, he's the executive director of the Interventional Cardiology Program at Brigham and Women's Health, professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, in addition to holding many other roles and titles in societies with greater than 1,500 publications in his career. He is truly the expert in antithrombotic management. We're so lucky to have him here today. So thank you, Dr. Bhatt. Great to be with you all. Let's get to it. I think we all have patients that are very challenging when it comes to antithrombotic, antiplatelet therapy management. And so today we're hoping to see about three patients with Dr. Bot to get his expert opinion. The first case is the case of a 71-year-old woman who presented with sudden onset chest pressure and diaphoresis while at rest. She called EMS, was found to have stable rhythm, and she was normotensive at that time and transported to the emergency room. There, a 12-lead EKG was performed. So on the EKG here, we can see that the patient is in a normal sinus rhythm. 
she has, from an ischemia standpoint, significant T-wave inversions involving the anterior procordial leads, pretty deep and symmetrical concerning for Wellen sign. This patient is somebody who came in with classic chest pain symptoms with an EKG that's suggestive of ischemia. And diving into her past medical history, the patient has a known history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, paroxysmal atrial fibrillation with a CHADS2 VASC score of 4 and a HASBLED score of 1. No significant past surgical history, a family history that's notable for type 2 diabetes and heart failure in her mother and a father who had a history of stroke. And then social history showed that patient did not have any significant history of tobacco use, had infrequent alcohol use, and did not use any illicit substances, lived alone, had no limitations to her ADLs. Looking at her home medications, the patient was taking a Pixaban 5 milligrams BID. She was on a beta blocker, metoprolol tartrate 25 milligrams BID, and she was on Losartan 50 milligrams daily. On physical exam, the patient was alert-oriented, not in any acute distress, lungs were clear bilaterally. She had a regular rate and rhythm, normal heart sounds without any murmurs, two-plus pulses in all extremities, no lower extremity edema, and she was warm and well-perfused on exam. Lab-wise, we did not have any data available at that time. So looking at our CAP, we have our diagnostic here performed via right radial artery approach. The patient's right coronary artery was free of any angiographically significant disease, right dominant system. And then on her left coronary angiography, we note that the patient has a significant lesion in the mid-LAD, about 99%, with TIMI-3 flow into the distal vessel, and left circumflex was free of significant disease. And so this patient actually did undergo a PCI to the mid-LAD in this acute presentation setting. We opted to use the right radial artery approach. We did the procedure guided by intravascular imaging using optical coherence tomography, which gave us a good indication of the patient's vessel size and the lesion length. We were able to stent the lesion with a single stent and then check our work again with OCT to confirm that we had good stent expansion with coverage of lesion. We noted on our post-stenting OCT imaging that the stent was underexpanded in the distal segment, and so we went back and post-dilated in that segment with very good result. And so we'll have our completion angiography, which showed a 0% residual stenosis, TIMI-3 flow into the distal vessel. And on another image with panning, we saw that there was no evidence of dissection or perforation. The questions that this case brings up in this situation are, what is the appropriate antiplatelet and anticoagulation strategy for this patient? And does that look different from today versus in 12 months? This brings up a very common scenario and I think all of us see this in practice. Why don't we give that as a segue to Dr. Bath? How would you approach this case? What are your initial thoughts on hearing this presentation? And what's the evidence and latest guidelines tell us of how to approach this patient scenario? Really a great case. So first of all, this is someone that came in with a high-risk and STEMI dynamic ECG changes, symptoms that sounded really significant and severe. So going to the cath lab in an expeditious time frame would be the right thing to do. Radial approach would be preferred, especially because she's on an anticoagulant. But even if she weren't, if no contraindications, radial approach would be preferred. Intravascular imaging, I think, certainly is a good thing to do. There's some data supporting that IVIS may improve outcomes and data that are being accrued to see if that also applies to the same degree to OCT. So I agree with everything that was done here procedurally. And now the important part is to not mess up everything that's been done to this point. And the antithrombotic strategy really matters here. 
she's been tolerating a Pixaban 5BID as best we can tell from the case. So I wouldn't rock the boat. I would just resume that the night of the procedure if it had been stopped and continue that uh, indefinitely unless something changed about her or there was new serious bleeding or something. So that part, I think, is relatively easy. Want to make sure she's on the right dose of a Pixaban, which 5BID for her is, but underdosing is a problem. Sometimes older patients get underdosed inappropriately. And with a Pixaban, you do want to pay attention to the creatinine and to the weight, but with her age and normal creatinine and, and presumed normal weight, there'd be no reason to dose adjust. So 5BID all set with the Pixaban. Now we just got to figure out what to do for the antiplatelets. She should have gotten it and, and would have gotten in most places aspirin prior to the PCI, typically a loading dose, typically uh, for 81 milligram uncoated aspirins to, to chew and swallow if she'd not been on aspirin chronically and it wasn't on her list of meds. So presumably she wasn't. So hopefully she got that in the emergency department and that should be continued up through uh, discharge at a minimum. I don't know how long she'll be in the hospital, uncomplicated and STEMI, typically still in the US two to three days, you end up in the hospital want to at least get an echo on her before she leaves. So Whatever number of days she's in the hospital, she'd get the aspirin. Uh, then the question is, do you discharge her on aspirin or not? And I think sort of the bounds of aspirin use in this context would be at least getting it in hospital, never, well, should never say never medicine, but almost never giving it more than a month. But in general, the, the time frame should either be up through discharge or up to a week. The data from Augustus suggests up to a week probably is the sweet spot for minimizing stent thrombosis but also trying not to increase bleeding too much. Going beyond a month is almost always the wrong answer. Whether to go up to a month, again, I think up to a week's reasonable, up to a month, maybe in super high-risk cases, which I wouldn't say this was, but maybe here the extent of the LAD, accidentally pinched a diag, put in a second stent, now there's a bifurcation stent, maybe the ostium was pretty calcified, the diag not so well expanded for whatever reason. You might go with up to a month, but almost, I would say, never these days. So at least in hospital, maybe a week. Then the final part of it is the ADP receptor antagonist. And there, I would typically go for 12 months in this ACS patient. And if nothing new has happened in terms of ischemic events, stop that and then continue the NOAC, in this case, a Pixaban. You know, so that would be my strategy. Which should that ADP receptor antagonist be? In general, I would go with clopidogrel in this situation. But if for some reason, again, the patient was super high ischemic risk, I might consider ticagrelor instead of clopidogrel. If I was doing that, I would certainly stop the aspirin on discharge and not continue uh, triple therapy with ticagrelor as part of it. There isn't as much experience with ticagrelor in the setting, but there's some experience. You know, we did publish from Redual a PCI or experience, uh, that was a study with dabigatran, but our experience with uh, ticagrelor is only about four or 500 patients, but in carefully selected patients, it looked okay to use that instead of clopidogrel in a non-randomized part of that analysis. So in general, my default here would be discharge on the Apixaban 5BID, clopidogrel 75 a day. And I would have probably stopped the aspirin at the time of discharge, but if there was something that made me nervous about the patient's ischemic or stent thrombosis risk, uh, continue it up to a week and stop at that point. Thanks, Dr. Bath. If this patient wasn't under anticoagulation, would you do three months of DACT for a patient like this? That is, they don't have atrial fibrillation and NOAC isn't part of the equation at all? Correct. Uh, there, I would stick with what the guidelines say, and, and even more importantly, what the data support, which is at least a year of dual antiplatelet therapy, unless there was some bleeding issue that wasn't apparent here. 
certainly if they're getting triple therapy for any duration, but even otherwise with dual antiplatelet therapy, if it were a patient at high GI bleeding risk, I would throw a proton pump inhibitor in the mix, at least for that duration of double or triple therapy. Again, routinely, I would do that for triple therapy, though, as I said, I rarely use triple therapy for an extended period of time. But even with double therapy, if they're at high bleeding risk, you know, we'd shown in the cogent trial back in 2010 in New England Journal of Medicine that uh, PPIs uh, reduce GI bleeding significantly in patients on dual antiplatelet therapy, even ones that are at low GI bleeding risk, though in actual clinical practice, I implemented in patients that are higher GI bleeding risk. But in terms of the duration of, of the DAPT itself, if there was no bleeding that was happening in that patient on DAPT who's been stented after, in fact, a high-risk ACS, I would definitely continue the DAPT for at least 12 months, regardless of what that DAPT was, whether it was aspirin and clopidogrel, aspirin and prasugrel, or aspirin and ticagrelor. And, and barring contraindications in the patient not on a NOAC, as was just uh, proposed, you know, there I would typically favor prasugrel or ticagrelor. Again, unless they were at high bleeding risk or there was some other issue like cost. In many places now, Prasugrel is also generic, so that's less of an issue with that drug. And if cost is completely out of the issue, I, I tend to favor Ticagrelor, realizing that it's still branded in many cases more expensive than generic Prasugrel and certainly more expensive than generic Clopidogrel. But if that isn't an issue, in terms of the patient being able to get the drug uh, based on the PLATO trial, where there was a, a reduction in cardiovascular mortality with Ticagrelor versus clopidogrel, you know, I tend to favor that. So in general here, I would go with aspirin and ticagrelor if that was an option. If the insurer shut me down and said, you can't do ticagrelor, then I'd likely do aspirin and prasugrel. And if the patient had some higher bleeding risk that wasn't actually evident from how the case was presented, then I'd go with aspirin and clopidogrel at least 12 months. What would I do at 12 months? That's still uh, debated, but I generally tend to continue DAPT if it is a clopidogrel, I just continue that. If it's ticagrelor, I would, as was done in Pegasus and in Themis, uh, de-escalate to 60 PID of ticagrelor at that point. So that's the usual pattern I follow, but that's all predicated on that first year not being a rocky year. If there was major bleeding, well, then I'm not going to continue DAPT past that 12 months. I might even stop it sooner and then go with the ADP receptor antagonist monotherapy. If there was frequent Nuisance bleeding, to us, we call it nuisance bleeding. Maybe the patient thinks or feels it's a big deal and disruptive in a life. I likely wouldn't continue DAPT after 12 months and probably at that point de-escalate to, if they can do it, ADP receptor antagonist monotherapy. And if they, uh, for some reason, can't, then aspirin monotherapy. Dr. Bott, I think that's extremely comprehensive, a review of a very tough question. And you touched on some of the other things that we were hoping to discuss with you in terms of the actual PCI or index procedure. If we had less information regarding the, the procedure and, you know, we didn't have angiograms to review and this was an outpatient coming to you asking the question, how long do I stay on these medicines? Would that have any impact on your approach? You already touched on the other question of what if this was a more complex PCI? And I think that was very helpful. It's a great point you raise. Does the coronary anatomy and stenting procedure per se matter? And I think it does because there are certain anatomic subsets in particular when there's a lot of metal in there or maybe a slightly suboptimal result where longer durations of, of antithrombotic therapy, more intense cocktails may be warranted. 
But I like the way you phrased the question because it forces me to address another part of you. you said, what if you didn't know? I actually think it's really important to know. So the patient may be coming back to their family practitioner with that question. That often happens. Or even the general non-invasive cardiologist who's caring for that patient. I think it's important for that doctor, whatever they're especially, to close the loop with the proceduralist, the interventionalist in that situation and say, hey, you know, exactly uh, what do you think should go on? Because the procedure might really matter. And sometimes the procedure report may not capture that that osteodiag bifurcation stent wasn't fully expanded. That may not make it into the report. And the interventionalist who performed the procedure might have some reason to feel that more intense therapy is needed that's not fully captured. And sometimes a lot of that ends up being gestalt and not entirely evidence-based, but still pretty accurate. I mean, interventionists are pretty good at determining, yeah, this patient's at high ischemic risk. You know, this one isn't based on the coronary anatomy and the specific procedural details. So I, I don't think it's good to wing it. I think it really does matter whether it's a four millimeter OCT confirmed, uh, well-expanded uh, stent versus maybe a stent that isn't so well-expanded or there's residual disease left behind. All those things, I think, uh, do matter and can and should influence the decision. It's not you know, totally textbook. A lot of it's in a gray zone and left to the physician's sort of discretion and judgment, but the person that's best at, at, at assessing that risk is the interventionist. What I try to do, maybe I don't do it 100% of the time, but I try to, uh, is in my procedural note, provide some specific recommendations of what I think is best at that point in time. Now, if the patient develops a big GI bleed or colon cancer three months later, obviously those recommendations may need to be altered. If they come in with a recurrent ischemic event, another MI or a TIA or stroke or something, again, that might change what the recommendations are. But I try to leave something in the chart in terms of what I think the intensity, the combinations and duration should be. And I think that can be useful to referring physicians. And I do try to actually call that referring physician too and say, hey, this is what I think. And this one, I really think we ought to go maybe for a week with the aspirin. But if they're having a lot of GI distress, it's okay to stop right away. So I think that sort of conversation helps too. There's a lot of room for error here in the transitions of care. It's not such a, a simple thing to decide exactly what the antithrombotic cocktail should be. So it, it helps to put something down in a note, but it helps to follow that with a phone call. Thank you so much, Dr. Brat. That's really helpful. One person asked, do you routinely use platelet reactivity assays when you're choosing your ADP receptor agonist? I think it's a great question. Personally, I don't, other than for research purposes, I don't think there's any clearly, totally evidence-based demonstrable value. I mean, there certainly are some studies and meta-analyses that suggest there might be a role of platelet function testing or, or even genetic testing and that sort of thing. Maybe in the future, if, if other studies nail it down, that might end up being part of practice. I, I think it certainly deserves further study and further studies are going on. But right now, as a practical point, I don't use either forms of testing and just make the decisions based on the clinical trials and what they say to do. And then also what the guidelines say, of course, and also just that patient in front of me and what their ischemic and bleeding risk might be. There are a couple other questions I'll quickly address. You know, I touched upon proton pump inhibitor and somebody's asking about clopidogrel. Am I worried about that? I'm not personally worried about that interaction. I feel in the cogent trial that I referenced that was in NEGM in, in 2010. There, omeprazole was the PPI used. Clopidogrel was the second part of DAP in addition to aspirin. And in the context of several thousand patients followed for about six months, we didn't see any interaction. In fact, all we saw was a benefit in terms of significant reduction in GI bleeding. So I'm not actually worried. 
that's one of the things where there's a little bit of a disconnect between, say, the platelet function testing and what seems to be clinically important. But having said that, there are other PPIs that you could use where those theoretical concerns aren't concerns, and those are good PPIs, and now those are available too. So I don't think there's anything wrong with using one of those more advanced or, or, or newer PPIs that don't have those interactions. Thank you, Dr. Both. This was already a vigorous discussion. And just by the chat, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm from across the country, if not the world, to answer some of these questions here. Priya, why don't you just give us a conclusion on what happened with your patient here and then take it away with the next case. So with our patient, we ended up doing aspirin, Plapix, and and Theopixaban with the idea that we would swap the aspirin at one month. Unfortunately, she did develop a GI bleed. And what Dr. Bott mentioned, and this patient with the relatively low-risk PCI procedure with good stent area and complete stent experience confirmed by intravascular imaging, it may not have been necessary to do that longer duration of aspirin. And thankfully for her, she did have an identifiable source of bleeding and that was treated endoscopically. And so she was then continued a clopidogrel and apixaban. And so she's done well with that. Did you say that she was discharged initially on triple therapy for a period? So the question then becomes, did she really need triple therapy beyond that one Mark. And so she developed the GI bleed at about week two. And that really is in keeping with the Augustus data where those investigators came out pretty clearly saying, don't do more than a week, even though a month is anchored in many of our minds and practices. The week was really what they found was the optimal trade-off. I mean, longer, yeah, you will reduce stent thrombosis a little bit, but you do expose the patient to the risk of bleeding, which outweighs the, the reduction in stent thrombosis that might otherwise occur. That's why I said I, I would rarely go beyond a week, even many times to stop at discharge. But, but going the, that month, I, I think actually at this point in time, probably is a, a practice to abandon for 99% of patients. You know, most of the bleeding that occurs tends to occur early. We think about long-term bleeding complications. Of course, those can occur too. But numerically speaking, there's a much uh, larger percent of bleeding that occurs in the first few weeks after starting any form of antithrombotic therapy. It's a great case because it illustrates that point. I think if you are using triple therapy, it's a good idea for that period of time to be on a proton pump inhibitor. The only other caution I would have given to the patient, maybe this was or wasn't applicable to avoid NSAIDs. Certainly if they're on triple therapy, avoid ibuprofen and other NSAIDs. But sometimes patients have a lot of pain, but then I try to get them to use other things like acetaminophen or heat or, or, or uh, local creams or things. So those don't always do the trick, of course. Like you mentioned, there's no one size fits all for these patients. And so having more information and making that informed decision in conjunction with your interventional cardiologist is really important. So moving on to our next patient, also a very challenging scenario. We have a 57-year-old man who presented with a two-day history of intermittent reflux-type symptoms, worse with exertion and improved with rest. He also had some associated diaphoresis and nausea during these episodes. They lasted for several minutes and spontaneously resolved. He presented to the emergency room. He was normal vitals with heart rate that was in the 70s and blood pressure that was with systolic blood pressures in the one third. He was found to have a moderately elevated initial troponin and was evaluated by cardiology who recommended a left heart cath. We see that the EKG has really pretty nonspecific changes. We see a patient who has sinus rhythm with some ST segment depression and T wave flatten, no significant ST elevations that would suggest a STEMI presentation, but this is the patient that we consider to have an end STEMI, very atypical symptoms in the setting of diabetes. So past medical history was significant for hypertension, hyperlipidemia, type 2 diabetes, CKD stage 3. 
history of peripheral arterial disease with an interesting intervention history. He had Rutherford stage four classification. He had a procedure done two months prior with a stent placed in the right SFA superficial femoral artery, and he did have some residual popliteal disease. He was a former smoker, one pack per day, quit two months ago at the time of his procedure for his lower extremities. He uh, drinks alcohol for his six drinks per week and then infrequently uses marijuana. Family history is significant for diabetes, hypertension, and uh, coronary artery disease. Looking at his home medications, we saw that he was discharged from his prior procedure on aspirin 81 milligrams daily, clopidogrel 75 milligrams daily, in addition to his standard home blood pressure medications, which included lisinopril, hydrochlorothiazide, and amphetamine, he was also on insulin for his diabetes. Looking at his physical exam, he was normotensive with a normal heart rate, regular rate and rhythm, normal S1 and S2 without any murmurs. No GBD, clear lungs, was warm and well perfused. He had Doppler-able pulses in the right lower extremity and palpable pulses in the left lower extremity that were 1+. plus. Looking at his admission labs, his potassium was 3.6, bicarbonate was 23, creatinine was 1.5 at his baseline, hemoglobin of 13, white count of 5, nothing's really significant on his CBC or coags. LFTs were also within normal limits. BNP was normal at 60, and then troponin peaked at 1.2, which was above the index cutoff at 0.04. This patient, given his multiple coronary disease risk factors and uh, symptoms, was taken to the cath lab and found to have this 99% thrombotic mid-RCA lesion. He also had some disease involving the left system with moderate disease involving the LED and the diagonal branch. And so this RCA presentation was felt to be acute. He did have IBIS-guided PCI to that lesion with a good result to meet three flow into the distal vessel. We used IBIS for sizing and also for confirmation that we got a good result with the extent expansion in opposition to the against the vessel wall. So the question becomes, what is the appropriate antiplatelet and anticoagulant strategy in this patient who was already on aspirin and Plavix at the time of having an acute MI in the setting of a post-intervention for the lower extremity? And the question becomes, what do we do today and then what do we do in 12 months? And does the treatment strategy vary based on duration? Another great case, a, a great presentation of the case. This is someone that's coming again with the real thing, a real end STEMI. I'd say higher risk in multiple ways. It's relatively young, coming in with another ischemic type event, uh, despite being on medical therapy. I'll, I'll assume for this discussion, he's adherent to his therapy. We don't know that he really is adherent. We really want to check that once or twice or, or maybe three or four times if he's got a partner to check with that person as well. So that would be important. But assuming he was taking his aspirin and clopidogrel and still had uh, what looked like a ruptured plaque in the mid-RCA Timmy 2 flow, uh, I think that it makes sense to sort of bump things up. I would bump it up myself, not based on any sort of testing like platelet function testing that was alluded to before, but rather just going ahead and starting him on ticagalor instead with a load of ticagalor. And if that wasn't affordable to him because of insurance reasons, then Prazigrel. So I think that would be a good thing to do. I would do it for at least 12 months, though, would be inclined, again, as discussed in the last case, to continue it beyond that if he didn't have any major or nuisance bleeding during that 12-month period. And presumably he'll be okay because if he's taking his aspirin clopidogrel now, he's not bleeding that we know of. So I think he should be okay on long-term DAP. He's young and otherwise not at high bleeding risk that I could see. Some other things to think about just beyond the antiplatelet part of things is his diabetes. Uh, that's obviously a risk uh, amplifier, has hyperlipidemia. He's already on a torvastatin 80. That's good. Is there any room for azetamide? 
do we need to do that? Is his LDL out of control? I, I don't think I saw an LDL, but make sure that his lipids are in good shape. And by lipids, I really mean his LDL cholesterol. And if um, Torvastatin 80 isn't doing the trick, assuming he's adherent, then I would at a minimum add azetamide. And then as an outpatient, if the LDL is still not under control and he's adherent to all that, consider a PCSK9 inhibitor if that's not going to be a, a real problem in terms of uh, co-payments to him. The other thing I would do is check his triglycerides. If that's really elevated, I'd consider icosapentethyl as well based on reduce it. So that would handle the lipid side of potential risk. We've covered the DAPT. Now, some people might ask about the compass regimen. It wouldn't have been unreasonable when he had his drug-looting stent placed two months ago to the SFA with residual popliteal disease. It wouldn't have been unreasonable to use a Voyager regimen and, and have him go out on aspirin and 2.5 BID of rivaroxaban maybe a month of clopidogrel or something, but it looks like they used what I think was the prior de facto standard of care. There's not a lot of evidence actually supporting it after lower extremity intervention of aspirin and clopidogrel. If I wouldn't switch horses midstream, that is, I would probably keep them on aspirin ticagrelor at 12 months, de-escalate the ticagrelor to 60 BID and continue the aspirin at 12 months if he didn't bleed. Uh, theoretically, some people might say, what about the compass regimen and substituting rivaroxaban 2.5 BID? There was lower mortality in the compass trial as well with that regimen in uh, patients with CAD and or PAD. And that's not an unreasonable thought, but in the compass trial, we actually excluded patients who were on DAP or had an indication for it. So that strategy, while logical of switching to rivaroxaban 2.5 BID from an ADP receptor antagonist hasn't been studied. So I guess I wouldn't do it. And again, I, I'm typically a don't rock the boat sort of person. So if, if he's doing well 12 months from now on whatever DAP cocktail I put him on, I would continue that. Other things I'll just mention, again, not directly related to his antithrombotic therapy or his lipid-lowering therapies, I'd make sure his diabetes is well-controlled. He is on insulin, I see, but is he the sort of person that might benefit, say, from an SGLT2 inhibitor or a GLP-1 receptor agonist or both? Again, it would depend on his hemoglobin A1C, his tolerance for polypharmacy, his co-pays, and a lot of other things that go into that. But those are things I would at least consider. Obviously, some lifestyle modification. I don't know that I saw BMI, but if he's overweight, uh, weight loss, exercise, plant-based uh, diet would all be good things. I also have to talk to him about uh, smoking. He stopped smoking. As far as we can tell, that's good. want to try to make sure there's no secondhand smoke from anyone else living in the household, no vaping, no other things that sometimes people don't mention when you ask about cigarette smoking. He drinks or admits to drinking, basically a drink a day. I, I don't know if you saw the World Heart Federation just came out saying that it's a myth, alcohol and cardiovascular disease prevention. I agree with them. That's all confounded data and confirmation bias where people believe what they want to, but no good evidence that alcohol reduces cardiovascular risk. In fact, all the evidence that exists suggests uh, increases in atrial fibrillation and at higher quantities, heart failure and things like that. Obviously, other risk to alcohol. So I, you know, counsel him perhaps to reduce depending on how much he's drinking. Certainly not more than a drink a day for a man or a woman. That's always been the recommendation for a woman, but it really should be the recommendation for a man as well. Marijuana, a lot of patients and even doctors don't realize that is a risk factor for myocardial infarction. You know, classic work from Murray Middleman showed an odds ratio of about five with marijuana smoking, in particular in the hour or so afterwards. So Beyond the smoking aspect, smoking marijuana specifically as well, does increase MI risk. So even though that's an unpopular answer, just like the advice about alcohol, I would tell him to stop smoking marijuana, check that there aren't any other substances he might not have admitted to in terms of things like cocaine or amphetamines. 
you know, he's pretty young, 57, to have a bunch of problems. He already has bad PAD and CAD. So um, really want to throw the kitchen sink at him at this opportunity in terms of lifestyle and medical management. Thanks, Dr. Bott, for talking us through this pretty challenging case. And I'm sure that these are the kind of patients that we're going to be running into more frequently. And so I do have a question specifically of patients with polyvascular disease. How do you go about assessing beating risk whenever you do think about transitioning them to aspirin and lotus welto at 12 months, assuming that's appropriate for the patient? Is there anything specific that you do in the setting of polyvascular disease for bleeding risk? Great question. And I'm really happy that you presented a polyvascular disease patient because there are a fair amount of them out there and they're very high risk. It's a powerful risk amplifier. We coined the term in the REACH registry as published in JAMA in 2006. And for people that aren't so familiar with it, it just refers to having a plaque in multiple arterial beds. So different from multi-vessel coronary artery disease, this is really referring to, say, somebody that has a history of PAD and CAD, as is the case here, or cerebrovascular disease would be the other bed. Some people also throw renovascular disease in there, so uh, that can also sometimes be part of the definition. But at any rate, these are really high-risk patients, and studies have shown that you want to really be intense about your LDL reduction in these people. You want to be intense with your blood pressure reduction, assuming it's not causing side effects. And you want to use more than just aspirin in them if there isn't a bleeding contraindication. And DAPT is certainly a reasonable uh, option, but one that the COMPASS trial fully put on the map was the idea of dual pathway inhibition, separate from dual antiplatelet therapy. Dual pathway inhibition refers to aspirin, typically 81 milligrams a day in the U.S. or, or low dose elsewhere in the world, and uh, 2.5 BID of rivaroxaban, which I'll point out is much lower than the AFib dose of rivaroxaban. It's 20 milligrams once a day in someone with a good kidney function. But what we're talking about here is 2.5 twice a day of rivaroxaban. And that's because you want to use a lower dose in the setting of vascular protection. And you want to give it twice a day because the 2.5 isn't going to last uh, the full day. The 20 milligrams more or less last the full day. So those are the reasons for uh, the dosing. Also important to realize 2.5 rivaroxaban does not equal 2.5 apixaban. 2.5 apixaban in general would be a lot more anticoagulation than 2.5 rivaroxaban. So here we have to be drug specific, the data if one is using the Compass for Voyager regimen, applies specifically to Roraxaban 2.5 BID. So to answer your question, again, I'm not one that likes to switch horses midstream unless there's a good reason to. So if the patient was tolerating DAPT after this ACS and stent, I would just keep them on that one-year junction and switch them. But for people that were so inclined to disregard that and switch anyway, say, extrapolating from the COMPASS trial. Again, we didn't enroll these types of patients in COMPASS. We only enrolled patients uh, who are not on DAPT or, or didn't have an indication for DAPT. But I think it's the same sort of bleeding consideration. If you look at the hazard ratios for bleeding in, in COMPASS or, or in the DAPT meta-analyses, it's about 1.6, 1.7, about a 60, 70% uh, bleeding excess. For the most part, not fatal or intracranial bleeding, but if you treat enough patients, you'll see those too. So you want to be careful in either DAPT or dual pathway inhibition. If somebody's at high bleeding risk, these aren't good strategies. But in patients that are at average or low bleeding risk, like this 57-year-old, presumably a low bleeding risk, I think these are very good strategies to do more than just aspirin. But once more, it's got to be part of an overall strategy of things like smoking cessation and, and, and good control of other risk factors. So these aren't decisions just made in isolation. And 
Then you also have to think of the polypharmacy burden, right? Because I just talked about starting four or five new medicines on this patient. So you've got to put it all into context, see what his rates of adherence are right now. What can he actually financially afford? So a few different factors. Thanks, Dr. Bath. I think we'll try to present this last case and we'll, we'll present it quickly, but we'll still love to hear your thoughts on this last case, which presents a different scenario. So this case is courtesy of Dr. Amit Goyal from the Cleveland Clinic and co-founder of CardioNerds. So this is a 62-year-old gentleman, has a history of hypertension, currently active tobacco use, presents to another hospital with an interoceptal STEMI by EKG and pulses VTRS. So the patient is shocked seven times. They do get ROSC and the patient's following commands, the GCS is 15, taken emergently to the cath lab. Because this patient is deemed to be relatively high risk, this lab had decided to give the patient aspirin, ticagalore, and had given them cankerlor at the same time, along with unfractionated heparin. Now, this is the film. We can see the right system has diffuse, moderate to severe disease. Showing the left system right here, the patient has a acute occlusion of the LAD. The patient was able to get a single drug-eluting stent to the LAD and was doing electrically well. But there was still this diffuse disease in the RCA, and you can see on this left main, there's this hazy stenosis right at the distal left main as well. So now this patient is transferred to your facility. He still has obstructive right coronary disease, left main stenosis. Again, like I mentioned, the patient's hemodynamically and electrically stable is not having chest pain. They get an echo, the EF is around 45, 50%. The apex is a really hypokinetic. There's no thrombus. And the decision is made to pursue an elective cabbage. So Dr. Bath, what would your approach for antiplatelet therapy be for this patient? And specifically related to when would you schedule cabbage for this patient? And how would that affect your antiplatelet therapy strategy? This is another terrific case. I agree with the management that the outside hospital did prior to transfer in terms of stenting the culprit lesion in a STEMI. In fact, I agree with everything they did. I think preloading with aspirin, ticagrelor, cangrelor, which is an intravenous ADP receptor antagonist, uh, makes sense because that ticagrelor, even if you crush it, isn't going to kick in in time for the stent deployment. Uh, when you want that uh, second antiplatelet beyond aspirin to be active, uh, especially in somebody that might be in shock and uh, other issues with absorption, probably appropriately received narcotics with slowed gastric transit time. So totally agree with the pharmacotherapy of aspirin, ticagrelor, cangrelor. Uh, heparin's a reasonable anticoagulant there. So that part of the management is good. Uh, stenting the culprit lesion, perfect sense. Now, in terms of the disease in the right and the disease in the left main, I, I didn't clearly see a tight lesion in the distal left main, but for this conversation, we can assume that there was something in the right just looked diffusely diseased. I'd want to know more about the patient. That is, this is somebody that's 62. Uh, he was actively smoking, so I tell him to stop smoking. Uh, and I probably want him to be off tobacco for a while, give his lungs a chance to get into better shape before putting him on a ventilator and, and having cabbage. So I, I don't know that I feel compelled to do a cabbage as an inpatient, unless there was more to this story than I heard. He had a clear culprit, a STEMI. It was treated successfully with a good result. The EF is overall pretty well preserved, 50%. The apex, of course, has taken a bit of a hit from the LAD infarct. But otherwise, I don't feel compelled to do something this instant. I think I would discharge him. I would optimize his medical therapy, lifestyle modification, most importantly, including stop smoking. You almost died. Don't do it again. Beyond counseling, a referral to a smoking cessation program if needed, cardiac rehab as well, just to get the heart and the lungs and the rest of him in good shape. 
And also just asking him what exactly was going on before you had your STEMI. Were you running marathons and then you just had a STEMI that day? Or you've been having bad chest pain for the past year and then you happen to have a STEMI yesterday? If he was having lots of preceding angina, I might worry. Maybe it was just the LAD lesion. Maybe it was a severe lesion and a superimposed plaque rupture. But I might also worry maybe that other stuff is hemodynamically significant. But I certainly wouldn't rush to do anything now. I, I would want to take a better look at the film and see, A, is there really a, a severe left main stenosis there? But even if there is, it's basically stable disease. If he hasn't been having lots of angina for the past several months, therefore I'd feel okay treating it medically, at least for a period of time, and at least give him a month or so to settle down after this MI, and then consider whether he needs a cabbage, perhaps put him on a treadmill, see how he does. Is there a bunch of ischemia? If there's a question that there is ischemia, maybe delineate, is there actually a left main lesion? In that case, is there all, for example, of IFR to see if it's hemodynamically significant? But I'm not sure there's much to gain by just rushing him to the OR this moment. And if I can avoid the OR completely, I might do that. If it's a really easy left main distent, I might just go ahead and do that. Unless it was really tight, I wouldn't feel compelled to treat him like a complete patient and do it in the index admission or the next few weeks. Again, I think there's time here, unless I underappreciated the severity of that left main lesion. But all I saw was that you pointed to it, you said it looked hazy, and, and that was it. So yeah, I'll just ask whoever was interpreting the films and had the benefit of multiple views, was there actually a tight left main there? For the sake of discussion, but also on the interpretation, it was about 70% distal left main stenosis here. And maybe I can ask a, a quick follow-up question. And let's say this patient is deemed to have significant RCA disease outside of maybe what this specific patient has and significant left main stenosis and cabbage will happen in the hospital. What's the role of Kangrelor to bridge a patient, and it was specifically the bridge trial, for patients post-PCEI, but that will get cabbage during that hospital stay. Yeah, I think if you're going to do that, then it might have been better, actually. Of course, it was an outside hospital, hard to coordinate, to not put a stent in and just balloon the LAD lesion and then just plan for cabbage. Putting the stent in really now does obligate use of DAP. So that patient, I would uh, stop the ADP receptor antagonist, continue the aspirin up to and through the time of cabbage and after, and then have the patient on Kangalore. Important to realize the dosing of Kangalore, check with your local pharmacist. The PCI dose is much higher than the bridging dose. The PCI dose is FDA approved, as is the indication. Bridging is an off-label use of Kangalore, though we do it a lot at the Mass General Brigham Healthcare System. Just need to be careful because there can be dosing errors if you use the wrong dose. So you don't want to use a much higher PCI dose. You want to use a bridging dose which approximates the antiplatelet effect of clopidogrel. So that is what I would do. The decision is the patient must have cabbage before discharge. But again, if they're up and walking around okay and promise to stop smoking and everything, I'm, I'm not sure there is such an imperative to do the cabbage in-house. The patient didn't develop 70% left main yesterday. That patient's been working up that left main stenosis for a few years. So again, unless they were having disabling angina for the past three months, I'm not sure that there's an imperative to do anything right away. And I might also consider, since the patient's already gone down the path of one stent, if it looks like a straightforward left main, I would have a discussion with them perhaps and say, look, we could stent this uh, if you're up for it, if you're up to taking DAP long-term, if you're already tolerating the DAP that I've had you on from the STEMI pretty well, that might be another option. Probably good to have a heart team discussion involving the patient, their family, but also a cardiac surgeon. 
there was a question from uh, Arun Galati that had asked basically what's the role of Integralin generally during uh, PCI and specifically, let's say the patient did have significant haziness or it looks like an acute lesion in the distal left main, what would be the role of Integralin in those kind of patients? It's a great drug. It's an intravenous glycoprotein 2B3 inhibitor. Lots of great data from years past. At our place, we typically would use Kangalore. I haven't really been using 2B3 inhibitors anymore. The data that exists, such as an analysis from Muthu Varaganathan, as a matter of fact, your friend and mine, who is currently at the Brigham, work published both in JAK and JAMA Cardiology, where we looked at the champion databases and showed that it looks like, at least in propensity-matched analysis, that Kangalore provides at least the same degree of anti-thrombotic effect and protection from ischemic events as does a 2B3 inhibitor with about half the bleeding and transfusion rate. I think if it were available and it's not on every hospital formulary, I would go with Kangle or not a 2B3 inhibitor. If Kangle wasn't available, then I would use a 2B3 inhibitor. I think eptafibotide or tyrofiban are both reasonable options in that setting. And in general, in someone that has a STEMI or a high-risk end STEMI, and there's obvious thrombotic hazy lesions, I, I think it's a good idea to use those agents because the oral ADP receptor antagonist, at least in the case of STEMI, typically hasn't kicked in. The advantage of Kangalore, as we showed in the champion trial, very short half-life. It, it's out of the system in an hour, even if the liver or kidney function is quite impaired, unlike the 2B3 inhibitors, which are renally cleared or, or at least renally affected. So I think that my first choice would be Kangalore, but in those hospitals where that isn't an option, then I would use a 2B3 inhibitor. I think the wrong answer would be just aspirin, heparin, and hope for the best in that sort of high-risk patient because everything always goes well in PCI until it doesn't. And you hear lots of folks out there say, oh yeah, I never have stent thrombosis or I never have bleeding complications. It's all a function of how many cases you're doing. And even if you're a high-volume operator, a lot of the major complications, things like retroperitoneal bleed, no reflow, that sort of thing, you, you don't necessarily see those every day, but that's why we do large trials, because that's what allows us to see what interventions help reduce infrequent but serious events. Thank you, Dr. Brock. In the setting of ACS in patient who goes to cabbage, what is your thought on P2Y12 inhibitors in that setting post-cabbage? Yeah, it's a terrific question. I think the data are pretty clear from, say, the CURE trial and the PLATO trial. If somebody comes in with an ACS and they end up getting cabbage, ideally, they should also be on dual antiplatelet therapy, uh, start at the time of discharge, assuming that there's no surgical bleeding or other bleeding issues. That's what the data support. But the registry data clearly show that DAPT is very underutilized in that setting probably because cardiac surgeons are often not starting DAPT and, and are most often the ones in charge of post-cabbage care. But at places where cardiologists are very involved with that post-cabbage care, that's where you tend to see more DAPT use. So you certainly want to consult with the surgeon in terms of the timing of when to start it. And you want to make sure there aren't issues with excessive chest tube drainage or incisional bleeding or even bleeding from the harvest sites in the leg for veins and that sort of thing. But Assuming all that's okay, I, I think starting it in particular at the time of discharge is usually a safe and, and reasonable thing to do. And if for some reason that was missed and you're seeing the patient in follow-up, say in a month or something, it's not too late then to initiate the DAPT, assuming, again, there's no bleeding contraindication. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Dr. Bott, I think we would like to talk with you all day and have many more questions, but we need to be respectful of your time. Thank you for this. And thank you, Priya Kapali, for your help and for guiding us through these cases. And thanks, everyone, for joining Cardio Nerds. We hope to see you next time. Beep. Beep.